Hi everyone, welcome to This is Lassonde, a podcast where we bring you stories from a diverse array of creators working to create positive change in the Lassonde community and beyond. So sit back, relax, be inspired, and learn something new with us. On today's episode, we have Dr. Sirkantha, an assistant professor in the Electrical Engineering and Computer Science Department here at Lassonde. Her research focuses on power grid systems and the distribution of electricity. We will speak with her about how a career change led her to this research, the work and service she does with her team, and some insight into her work as a professor here at Lassonde. Hello there. Uh, my name is Connor McGrath, and I'm very excited to speak with you today. Hey, Connor. Thanks for having me. Um, my name is Fernanda Srikanta, and I'm an assistant professor in the Electrical Engineering and Computer Sciences Department. Uh, my work is mainly focused on power system. All right. We got some good questions to ask you today. So I kind of want to start at the beginning. How did you know that you know, engineering, specifically electrical engineering, was the right major you wanted? Um, actually, it started with my dad. He's an electrical engineer, so I was inspired seeing him every day work. And it just seemed very cool to me how what he was doing and how he was you know, addressing problems. And he was very busy. He traveled. So that was all very interesting to me. And that's how it started. But then when um, time went by and I actually took courses, they were actually interesting to me as well. So I think the combination of several things. Awesome. Um, do you know like what specifically about it interested you? Uh, yeah. So when we started off, like uh, when I did my undergraduate degree uh, at the University of Waterloo, I was in this program called Systems Design. Uh, so it is a, sort of a broad program where we get to experiment different disciplines and sort of picked at the end of the program what we wanted to focus on. Um, so in that sense, I was, uh, when I was taking courses related to, you know, math and science and physics, uh, those are very interesting to me and I did very well. And signal processing, when we got into higher years, upper years, um, that was extremely interesting to me. Uh, but interestingly, I initially went into computer engineering, specifically communications, uh, wireless communications. That's what I started with my master. Uh, so I went into the master's program thinking that I'll do computer engineering. So that was in 2010. Um, so that was when I think the whole climate change, uh, sustainability, the whole movement sort of came into full force, full action. And my advisor at the time told me that, you know, there, this is a very interesting area. Uh, there are so many opportunities here. And uh, do you think you want to work on it? And I said, why not? So it wasn't exactly planned how I got into this field. Uh, but I, I liked it a lot when I uh, was given my initial problem. I loved it. That was a long scope at that time for this research. So I think that sort of brought me into it even deeper. And then I did my doctorate in that area. And then here I am. Oh, that's cool. You just kind of went for it. Yep. Why not? <laughs> yes. Go with the flow. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay. That, that was really cool. That was really interesting. So how did you go from there to becoming a professor and researcher at York? Right. So um, I did my doctorate in the area of cybersecurity and power systems. So again, my background master's was uh, doing research in smart grid systems, which means you know, how do you uh, leverage the communication and intelligence in the power grid to do useful things. So that was sort of like my master's thesis. Um, and then I was looking for an advisor for my doctoral program and uh, 
So Dr. Kundur, she is at U of T and her work was centered around cyber physical security of the power systems. So I never thought about security actually prior to going into my doctoral program. And then at that point, I was sort of exposed to the other dimension, the, the vulnerabilities that are introduced by the communication systems in the power grid. How can that be used to like destabilize the power grid? And that was very exciting to me because it was not the traditional encryption and crypto work, but it was more like, how can you work with the physical system, the grid states, physical electrical states to cause uh, you know, disruption in the grid using you know, communication channels. I liked to work with her. So that's what I did my doctoral programming. And then I really wanted to be that academia. I knew that for a fact, because I worked a lot in the industry. I was in a co-op program when I was an, an undergraduate student. So I worked uh, five co-op terms in different companies and they were all great, but I really liked the research component. I liked that academics. Um, so I knew for a fact that I was going to go in academia. So I tried to publish a lot. I tried to, you know, do some teaching, really, uh, you know, connect with the industry partners to my advisor. So uh, I applied for jobs in my last year, uh, academic positions, and I ended up at Western as an assistant professor. So yeah, I joined here at Western University. I was there for two years and then um, I was contacted by York University. Uh, they said that there's an opening here and it's a Canada Research Chair uh, opening. So that was exciting because that's sort of like the next step in my career. So I applied and here I am. Wow. So I'm glad you started talking about you know, your research in power grid systems because that's that's really what I'll, I want to get into on this podcast because I was doing a little bit of background research and reading on you and also that led me to research on like power grid and smart grid systems. And honestly, the more I researched, I felt like the less I knew. So I'm glad I get to talk with this about you. So in terms of you know, power grid and smart grid, I know you gave a little description, but what would you say is like a high level summary that someone in our audience could understand? Right. So all of us know power is electricity is a fundamental backbone for our society. So uh, power systems has been around for a couple of decades. So it's a very traditional system uh, that's very robust and works very well for a long period of time. So uh, we know that whatever was built many, many decades ago is still there actually in practice. So the power system is one of the sort of like scientific like innovations that, you know, inventions that has been extremely um, critical and it's been functioning very well until recently. Because you know now we are having a different set of endpoints, so we have different types of users, like people owning electric vehicles. People have different types of appliances. People have different types of connectivity, so they have app, you know mobile apps and all. People also want to consume electricity in a sustainable way, so that's one thing. And another aspect is that we have a lot of uh, different types of generation systems, storage systems, we have renewables like solar. So up photovoltaics, we have wind turbines, uh, and moreover, on top of that, the climate change concerns are really pushing the drive to integrate these components into the power system, which is actually uh, not designed for these kinds of end systems. So we have a very traditional system that's very old, but functioning very well and very expensive to you know upgrade. And we have these new diverse end nodes coming in, and we want to integrate a as fast as possible, but there are physical limitations of the power system, physical electrical limitations, which we have to overcome. Uh, so that's what I guess we have the power systems in the traditional sense is a system that connects, you know, diverse uh, various generation systems that are typically geographically dispersed. So we have 
say it's like a hydroelectric apart plant, nuclear plant. These are like all you know far away. They all connected um, through these uh, power systems that operated high voltages, which is transmission systems. And then this power travels through this network and kind of reaches us consumers to the distribution side, where you know we tap off of that uh, you know electricity that's sort of traveling throughout the country uh, and we consume it. So. Uh, so that's a typical power systems. And then now we have, you know, I can have a solar system on my rooftop. I can have a storage system that can inject that power. So consumers can now produce power. And, uh, but our physical power lines are not designed to accommodate a large number of these sort of changing entities, right? So, so that's why we have a transition from power systems to something that should be smarter. So what do I mean by smart grid? So that's an interesting topic because... Smart grid is anything that sort of like uh, distributed systems get to consume power. So we are fitted with uh, you know communication systems, sensors, and advanced actuators that can all work together to overcome these limitations, right? In the integration of diverse end systems. So smart grid is literally like a system that's smart. It can communicate many many sensors and deployed for getting real time like monitoring and actuation. Very interesting. So it's it's working to sort of diagnose problems before they can happen. So we want to use the advanced, like, you know, communication facilities and like computational capabilities of, you know, devices that are not very cheap, right? So communication and computation is not no longer that expensive as it used to be. So these can be deployed in large numbers across a physical infrastructure like the power grid. So we want to use that to overcome existing limitations in increasing diverse sustainable generation sources and sustainable consumers. So that's the idea. So uh, basically to give you an example, maybe, uh, you know, if we have hundred electric vehicles trying to charge their vehicles at the same time, the same parking lot, that's going to be a problem because you'll see a voltage dip uh, and then we'll go beyond the limits and then they'll, we'll see a lot of failures in that area. So this, there'll be outages and that's inevitable. Now, if we use a smart sort of system where we can coordinate amongst these electric vehicles, there's a communication, you know, overlay there. And then you have smart algorithms that are designed to like schedule these based on people's comfort, what their limitations are, what their requirements are. So that's scheduling sort of competition side. And then actually making it happen via actuators that are smart switches that are connected to these cars, vehicles that can sort of automate this charging process. It's, it's a very simple example of how you can, you know, accommodate these sort of like advanced systems uh, while keeping the existing infrastructure as it is as much as possible because changing it will be very expensive. Yeah, okay. That, that's really cool. It's sort of adapting it to today's changing world, right? Yeah, that's right. So I remember also reading about potential, what would be the potential security threats to like smart grids or smart system? Yeah, that's a very good question. So much of this is not released uh, publicly, but uh, we know for a fact that, you know, there are a lot, a lot of utility companies uh, or system operators uh, and generation operators that are being attacked all the time by cyber entities, right? So this is much easier now. You don't need to be physically there. You just connect remotely. And, you know, uh, if, for example, this uh, a control systems in a generation plant is not updated, right? It's very simple you know, like they are up running on like old Microsoft Windows from 2000, for example, and they haven't updated it. And it can be 
sort of leverage to buy these adversaries remotely and get into the control system. And, you know, adversarial ads. For example, in Iran, this is public, uh, the nuclear plants, the centrifuge was actuated in a way to cause extensive damage to the plant, right? So uh, they got into these back hole, back doors that, because, you know, security is, must be at the forefront, I think, in these times, because everyone is becoming very computer savvy. So uh, it's very easy to, you know, execute these uh, sort of attacks uh, without much overhead, physical overhead. So uh, this is one example in Iran. And the ones in Ukraine, like the, I think this feeder was down for a couple of hours for a large set of consumers. So a lot of people were experiencing outages for a long period of time because of this cyber attack on distribution systems. And there are many more that we don't know, I'm sure is happening because if you remove this uh, access to electricity, that is probably the best, I mean, easiest way to compromise the society first. So, so that's, that's a, I think, very important concern uh, in the power domain at least. Yeah, that, that is scary when you think about it because like the work you're doing in power grid systems and distribution of power, it affects all of us in many ways, probably in a lot of ways that, you know, the average everyday consumer doesn't even realize, you know, an attack or a failure is, is pretty scary. That's right. And also, uh, I guess in terms of my work, what I do is we try to identify new modes of threats. We design new modes of attacks and then see how this affects the power and come up with strategies to mitigate this, right? So if you know how to do like temper sensor measurements and controls in a strategic way, you can bypass all safety mechanisms in the power grid and really cause a very cascading and widespread impact on the grid. So that's where the power system angle comes in because we need to know about the physics, the electrical flow to realize, to understand how to design algorithms that can cause stealthy but widespread impact. So what in your research, what would you say is like the one or maybe many questions you're trying to answer? Uh, so I would say the most important question to me is uh, how can we make our grid very sustainable? I think it's very uh, personal to me too because uh, I really, I'm worried about our earth environment and I do think like drastic steps need to be taken like very urgently and quickly to not have irreversible damages to our system, our world, right? So um, so that's a very close question to me that I am always thinking about. So how can we integrate? It'd be ideal if we can all have, you know, renewables on our rooftops and we drive clean, like use clean energy, uh, you know, net zero energy. Like, so how can we get to that state? Uh, and, you know, so for that, it's like a really big question. Um, thousands of researchers are working on it, but smart algorithms, it's not that costly that can be quickly implemented so that, you know, we have some sort of a solution for now, for the current time, because time is running. So I just feel that urgency that, you know, we need to do something about it. I agree. In your research, how big of a team do you work with? Yeah. So, uh, I just graduated a couple of students. So my current group oh. is a little small, but, uh, so I will have uh, seven students. Um, so two PhD students and four masters and one undergraduate student. So that's the current status. All right. Uh, what lab do you work in? So my lab is called RICE Lab, that is an Intelligent Sustainable Energy Systems Lab. So we are still in the Lausanne School of Engineering. So currently the office is sort of floating around. So we haven't had a permanent location yet because I'm getting equipment, which may require another move. So we don't have a permanent house yet. All right. 
So in your research, what would you say is the next step? Like, where do you see the research going in any number of years? Yeah, so uh, at least in my research, what I've been doing so far is proposing algorithms in theory. So I want to see it in action, in practical systems. So I think that's the next sort of step for in my research. I want to show that this is all like practical and works well in actual physical system. So we are getting this test bed for cyber physical systems. So I'm building it. We'll be having it live, hopefully by end of summer. So that will allow us to test actual hardware, the power and how do those interact with the algorithms that we have designed? Because it's nice to say everything in theory, but to see it in practice is actually what will, you know, make things valid, I think, um, and validate our work, right? So, and also be interesting to industry partners if they see it in, in action. That's really good to hear. So we've talked a lot about your research, which is very great, but I also kind of want to talk about your work as a mm -hmm. professor. You know, you were, you were just talking about how you graduated a couple of students. Yeah. So I just wanted to ask, um, that, that was probably one of the more like rewarding parts of your work as a professor and a researcher, right? Yeah, absolutely. So you get to work with students and really sort of nurture it, right? So that's sort of the, one of the components or aspects of our work, right? So as a professor, uh, I don't know if many, many students know this, but our work is divided into three parts. So specifically, we have percentages, sort of a rough idea of how much time we should spend on different things. So there are three different areas that we have to focus on teaching, research, and service, right? So teaching and research is 40%, 40%, and 20% of our time is in service. So that's uh, the rough split of our work. So teaching includes teaching courses and also mentoring students. So, you know, hiring students, uh, working with them to develop research problems, and then publishing it and building prototypes and working with industry partners, right? So all of that, it's a, it's a very like sort of wide uh, spectrum of things that we do. So you're right. So working with students is very rewarding because, you know, usually students come in working, not having a very, you know, clear direction, which is fine, which is totally expected because I've done it myself, switched careers and paths, fields many times. So that's not uh, a problem. But when they realize that, you know, this is like very interesting, but yet we can solve it, we can find a solution for it, uh, that realization, and then we can actually publish something and go to conferences, how they grow from the beginning to the end of the degree is very nice to see. So that's very challenging. I mean, very rewarding to me. Um, sure but I challenging as well. Uh, challenging in the sense that you know, like we have to get to the same like sort of speed. The students come in with a different background, so the specific needs and requirements of my research, not everyone may have, and that's fine because you know you have to like work on building your background and foundations. That's expected, and I give them space for that. And we also they can feel free to talk to me and you know, ask me to explain things and go through things with them. So, so the, the initial phase of coming to speed and, you know, uh, developing the necessary background to do research maybe is challenging for students. Uh, but once that happens, it, things are smooth sailing. All right. And you talked about um, service, 20% uh, service, right? Yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about what service entails and what kind of work that your students do? Yeah, so service, uh, I think in the most formal sense, it's service to the department, the faculty, and the universities, right? So we serve in committees, like, for example, I serve in the awards committee where we adjudicate awards. Uh, I serve in hiring committees where we hire 
of faculty members in the, in the department. Uh, you know, and I said, I'm serving in like um, the graduate uh, studies committee and the submit committee says these are necessary to ensure the proper operations of the department and the faculty in general, right? So these are sort of administrative tasks that we do, but uh, I guess there's also an informal component there, you know, you can't really put a number to it. You just have to, you know, I just like to be engaged in outreach activities with, uh, you know, high school students and uh, being a mentor and participating in competitions as a judge. So the, all of that is sort of, I don't know if it's really under the form of umbrella service or not, but it's something that I do and that makes me sort of happy. So so that's the other side as well. Uh, for students, I encourage my students to do a lot of outreach um, as well, mentorship roles, especially senior PhD students who can mentor master students and master students mentoring undergraduate students. We typically have several undergraduate students in our lab working, so they are all have, they have a nice pure sort of group going on. So that's how they do. And also like as an engineering profession, we need to advance it and so, sort of do activities that encourages innovation. And so we need to organize conferences, organize workshops, organize, you know, activities uh, that fosters professional development as well. So it's sort of like a all-rounded, it's a spectrum of things that we do. Really like creating an impact, right? Yeah, I mean, engineering is a profession that uh, is very traditional, and there are things that need to be always, you know, brought into attention to other like colleagues. And so, and innovation, all that needs to be sort of disseminated, right? So, it is a peer-driven system. So, we support one another, um, and we try to advance our research and profession with one another. So, it's a very collaborative thing. It's great to hear. Um, you talked about changing careers and changing paths. And, you know, as a student, that sounds, that sounds really, really scary, honestly. And I'm sure a lot of students probably also feel the same way that, you know, when they come to university, they choose a path and they, they really kind of have to stick with that path, even if they don't like it, or, you know, it's not really, not really making them happy. And what would you say to students who feel that way? I think it's, uh, to be practical, it's not possible to have a very good idea when you're 18 years old of what your you know, final stage of career is going to be. So uh, personally, I didn't think, uh, I mean, I was, the reason why I went into systems design is because I had no idea what I wanted to do. So it was a general program. That was what was told to me. So I think the similar course programs are offered in Lausanne as well, that are, there are general programs that are ready to, after first two years, sort of select your streams, right? So and don't feel so bad about it. And uh sometimes changes for good, like you have transferable skills. So you learn something from one discipline. And for me, for example, I had a sort of background in communications and networking in the computer engineering domain and all of those skills that distributed, you know, routing, TCP, IP, like the communication protocols, those may seem very trivial for communication engineers, but when you get into the power domain, so decentralized control, all of that knowledge that I had, I was able to transfer and do very interesting and innovative work. So uh, I wouldn't think it's a loss if you change your mind because your your thoughts and the way you think about things is different. Your perspective is different. And don't worry about time because, you know, like you, you want to end up doing what you like to do. So don't be too pressured about it. Uh, don't put too much restriction. Because at the end, if you know where you want to be, for me, I went through the whole industry, you know, programs and all that. So I had a good idea that I really enjoyed academics and that's where I wanted to end up in. And I really loved doing research, uh, coming up with a new research problem. So that was all. And I didn't worry too much about the 
topics. And fortunately for me, I, I ended up in an area that is impactful and very, uh, you know, interesting to me. So I think we, at, at the end, find our, our way if you have the right mindset. So I, I wouldn't be too worried about uh, having strict restrictions and deadlines because, uh, you know, even if you change paths, it's going to be helpful. I like that. Probably needed that advice myself. Probably I need to hear that today. Um, is there any other pieces of advice that you would give prospective students, current students, even alumni, just any advice to making it in this industry or like the most important qualities that you think they should have? Uh, I think the most important quality, to be honest, is don't give up. That's the only thing I would say, because for me, I was told that, you know, it's hard to get into academics. It's not possible. It's very competitive. I heard a lot, but for me, uh, yes, I knew all that. Even my family members were slightly worried about the path I was taking because they didn't see an end game in goal, right? And so where was it going to end up in? Because, you know, uh, but I didn't get detracted. I, I just pursued my passions and I did what I liked to do and loved to do. And to be honest, I took the two-year break actually after my master's just to make sure that, you know, I, am I okay? Because this is a long time inverse investment going to like a doctoral program. You know, it's a long process and you need to be sure mentally that you want to, you know, pursue such a, you know, it's a lot of sacrificing to do with that period because it's, uh, you know, you have your friends who are working, enjoying their life, or you're a student still, you know, like no income. And well, there is income, but not sufficient enough, right? To do things that you want to do. So I really wanted to make sure that, you know, I had the opportunity to like work in the industry and make sure that, you know, that's not what I wanted to do. And then I was in the right mindset when I came into the doctoral program that, okay, this is it. Uh, I know what I want to do for a fact. I know where I wanted to end up in. So I didn't give up. Uh, I heard a lot of things, but it didn't matter to me. I knew at some point, somehow, somewhere I'll end up where I want to be. So uh, unfortunately for me, it worked out very well. And um but, uh, you know, don't be detracted. And even if it takes time, that's fine, because usually it's, you have to be in the right field at the right time in the right place, right, to, for everything to align. And if it doesn't work out right away, it will work out at some point. Just keep doing what you like to do. That's why I think I have my piece of advice for alumni, for current students, and for undergraduates, and you prospective students too, don't feel bad if you don't know what you want to do, because it's impossible from high school to really know what you're getting into, like the depth of the courses you're going to take and what you will actually do. So that's my piece of advice. Yeah, I really connected to what you said when you're looking at your peers and look at what they're doing and compared to, to you. And I think a lot of students and like myself included kind of have this idea that there's sort of this, this one correct path in life, in your education or in your career. And you're always comparing yourself with you know, your peers and everybody else. But I think, like you said, it's good to know what's right for you. And if you're happy and you can really see yourself doing this for a sustained period of time. Yeah. And to be honest, like there are other friends who are probably earning, like they're, they're doing very well. But the thing is, a professor position, like my, from my experience, is that it's the most autonomous position where you get to decide what you want to do. You get your own funds. You do what you like to do. Then that's the freedom and flexibility that I would never give it up for anything else. So, so that's that's my view. So it depends on what the priorities are as well, right? And you might. So yeah, that was that was great. I, I love I loved hearing you say that because you know even though like I know it's true, it's good to hear you know someone who is you know, really successful assure me, and I'm sure a lot of our audience will feel that way as well. It's great. 
So a uh, little bit of a shift. I sort of want to talk about EDI at York. So equity, diversity, and inclusion. So how important and how meaningful is that to you? Oh, it's very important to me because uh, I, I identify myself as coming from a sort of minority group, right? So being a female, being um, South Asian background, uh, I've gone through high school and everything myself. So I've, I've been through the challenges. So it's very, very important to make sure that equity, diversity, and inclusion is you know, instilled in all tiers of education and society and industry and so on. Because commonly, I personally, I feel like you need to encourage this, uh, the field of STEM to everyone, because the first thing is we have different perspectives. So we may develop much more interesting and different solutions to the same problem that has been looked at by the same set of people for a long time, right? So it introduces diversity in that sense, the thought process. Um, and EDI, unfortunately, it needs to be sort of like, you need to start it from the beginning. So from kindergarten, I think, or so from the time you know, a child goes to school, they're exposed to the stereotypes and, you know, STEM and all that should be brought into the curriculum, brought into like activities at a very young age because it's systemic. It develops over time. You can't go to high school to a student who's grade 12 and expect them to be swayed into thinking that STEM is not difficult, STEM is not challenging, STEM is interesting, right? So that has to be cultivated from a very young age. And I think EDI is very important. And I'm glad that York and Lassonde is really making strides to, you know, address these issues. Great. How would you say you engage in encouraging EDI? Yeah. So I think uh, personally, when I was growing up, I needed to see role models in who are like me and who are doing things that are, you know, different. So I think I'm in that position where I can say that I am a role model to several people. And so for me, participating in like activities, like competitions, being a judge uh, in these competitions and I've given talks to girls in Girl Scouts, Barneys, uh, and also participated in like fairs, uh, university fairs, open houses. I need to be physically be present because I understand the need for role models and the need to identify with someone who is like you and, you know, they can be something that they may think that it's not possible, right? So I think in that sense, I need to be physically, you know, interacting with people and I enjoy doing that a lot. So that's one aspect. And the second thing is mentorship because... Research is something that it's sort of like seems very gray and not very clear to many, many, many students. So, uh, you know, working and mentoring students in the STEM area, that was helpful because students didn't know what research entailed. What does it mean to research? What does it mean to publish? What does it mean to do these things? So uh, to have a, to give an, so to have opportunities to explain this to students and to share experiences about what we have done. Uh, and even like some uh, podcasts like this is very interesting to me because I get to talk to students like yourself, right? And, you know, discuss the personal experiences I've had and sort of really hopefully inspire <laughs> along the way. I mean, that that's great to hear. Like even even something just as simple as just being there and being successful in your work can have such a huge effect on somebody at such a young age. That's right. So we need moral models. And that's what I think it's personally, I think that's important to have. So. How could somebody, like even say a student at Lausanne, help to engage with EDI? Absolutely. I mean, it's not a formal thing. Uh, it, it doesn't have to be formal. It could be formal in person mentorship activities, department outreach activities, in open houses, 
there, there's a K2I Academy with like a lot of outreach happening there. So that's a formal way of doing it. But even at home, you can see a younger sibling or younger niece and nephew or whoever, cousins or friends, just talk about what you do, your work as then see how exciting it is, do work projects with them, build things with them, build things that are like normally perceived to be difficult and hard, just make it fun. And you can have a significant influence, even with the close ones. It doesn't have to be a formal program. I like that. Sort of like, you know, opening the door into your world a little. Absolutely. And share any interesting experiences you've had. I'm sure that will incite some curiosity. We tend to ignore those who are close to us. And uh, that's the first place I think we should all start. Change personally at home, uh, your peers, your friends, your kids, whoever it is. Just say positive things and things that you like about STEM field. And then, of course, these are formal programs that exist to do formal outreach. That's also very nice ways. Like, be volunteers in organizing activities like competitions or conferences uh, or research activities. Uh, there are many ways of being involved. I think the sky is the limit for EDI because it's very important. I agree. I, it is very important. So we're coming down to the near the end of the questions I have. Before we end off here, is there anything that you want to say? Uh, I just like to say that, you know, I've been through many things before getting to this point. And I think every thing that I've experienced has really made me the person I am right now. And whatever I'm doing is shaped by these experiences. And I don't regret doing anything so far. So so I think uh, don't worry too much to everyone and just enjoy your life and pursue your passions. I know it's easy to say, but uh, it worked for me. So I'm sure it will. Don't worry too much about the future. I mean, it's not the right thing to say, probably. <laughs> Maybe uh, worry a little, but don't set too many deadlines and too many restrictions. I think life will fall into place, place. As long as you have the right intentions, you know, like you want to do something productive in life. It's very philosophical, but uh, I guess in terms of uh, power grids, it's not uh, in the traditional sense. Like it's not, you know, just very boring equations. It's no longer like that. It's a very interdisciplinary field. It's not just engineering, power engineering. It's a combination of software engineers for designing algorithms. It's a combination of machine learning specialists. We have a lot of data sets that are generated by the power grid. We do a lot of artificial intelligence and processing of that data. So it's a very uh, interdisciplinary area. So it's no longer a single dimensional, quote unquote, boring sort of field. It's very exciting. It's evolving. So some of your perspectives on what power engineering is, this is not the traditional sense anymore. And I think this is a very critical field area that needs a lot of young talents because we have a lot of folks who are retiring, you know, reaching the end of their sort of profession. So they need a lot of young talent to kind of send up the gap. And the traditional power systems is different from the modern power. That's all I have to say. Hope that I've got that across. Uh, yeah, I think you got that across. You know, hopefully people can listen to this and maybe they'll be inspired to look into power grid systems more. Great. Okay, uh, Dr. Srikantha, it was really, really great talking to you. Thank you, Dr. All right, everybody, that was Dr. Srikantha. I hope you learned a little bit more about how our power grid system works and the changes needed in order to make sustainable energy a priority. I know Dr. Srikantha inspired me to get involved on campus, and I hope she's inspired you as well. Until next time, thank you for listening to This is Lasange.